0: Granger, for the ones who get it done. If Charles Dawes would have done just one of his two constitutional
1: responsibilities he was tasked with, well, he might have saved a cabinet nominee from a very rare event, rejection by the U.S. Senate. But Dawes was tired.
0: Hey, this is Richard Bay from The Richard Bay Show, and if you're a political
1: junkie like me, and if you're interested in American political history, you're going to want to support My History Can Beat Up Your Politics by signing up for the Premium Podcast. I did, and if you like My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, you're going to love even more of it. So sign up at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. 1925, and the nomination of Charles B. Warren of Michigan to be Attorney General was under consideration, and it was a long day at the Senate. One of the nominee's supporters, Senator Cummins of Iowa, had begun what was planned to be a four-hour speech defending the President's nominee. Before him, Senator Reed of Missouri and Senator Walsh of Montana, leading Democrats, had each made lengthy speeches opposing the Warren nomination. Vice President Dawes checks with the minority leader and the majority leader. How does it look? Always told, after Cummins gets done with his harangue, there are six more senators. So it'll be nothing but talk for the rest of the day. So assured that his tie-breaking vote wouldn't be needed, Vice President Dawes leaves the Senate, turns the gavel over to the Senate President Pro Temp, and goes up Pennsylvania Avenue to his room in the Willard Hotel. Does he go to sleep? Well, no, he just kind of reclines. He wasn't completely negligent here. He had telephoned the Capitol twice during the afternoon to find out whether his presence was required, and the answer had still been no. But as he reclined more, five of the six intended Senate speakers withdrew their request, and now Warren had come up for a vote. Majority Leader Curtis has to call the vote, but he also issues a quorum call. And to the willard there came a telephone message to the honorable Dawes to get his very vice-presidential body down to the chamber at once. The veep put on his dress clothes went downstairs and summoned a taxicab. The taxi was delayed in a little bit of a traffic jam and it took eight minutes to reach the capitol. The jam that was occurring in the Senate was that the opponents of Mr. Warren declared he cannot be Attorney General, highest law enforcer of the land, because he had been implicated in improper relations with the Sugar Trust. Twenty years ago, he acted as an agent for the American Sugar Refining Company in acquiring stock in a number of Michigan sugar refineries. The Sugar Trust he helped create and was an owner of had been investigated by Congress. Senator Rita Missouri and Senator Walsh had cross-examined Mr. Warren on that occasion, and they brought up the former investigation in their speeches. Gee, you have to understand, it's 1925, and while it's a hotsy-totsy time on the radio and in the swing clubs and in the economy at large, it's a bitter time among Democrats and Republican progressives in the Senate who haven't felt they got what they wanted on the Teapot Dome scandal, a major presidential scandal with very little damage to the White House. See, a Coolidge, by assuming the office after Harding's death, was able to dodge the scandal for his party. In the context of the Teapot Dome scandal, Senator Reed summed up To appoint Charles Beecher Warren to enforce the trust laws against himself and his associates is as wicked as to appoint Albert Fall, special prosecutor of Harry Sinclair. Fall was the Interior Secretary, and Harry Sinclair was the corrupt businessman who had bribed him. Both were wrapped up in Teapot Dome. Fall, Senator Reed said, he could be bought. Warren? Warren is already owned in advance. Nonsense, Senator Cummins of Iowa argued at length. Mr. Warren's connection with the American sugar refining company had been perfectly proper, only such as any lawyer representing any client might undertake. Yet the progressives and insurgent Republicans, without exception, voted against confirmation. Hiram Johnson, senator from California and administration opponent, also voted against him. So did all the Democrats, except one. Senator Lee Overman of North Carolina, conservative Democrat, he expressed the opinion that the president should be given the opportunity of choosing his own official family. It was close. And when it was concluded, it was a tie 40 to 40 in the Senate. The Senate pro temp and the chair tried to delay announcing the result, hoping that Vice President Dawes would finally arrive and cast his vote and Warren would be approved. A Democratic senator, Senator Ashurst of Arizona was having none of that. He came to the front of the Senate chamber and called loudly for the result. Let the result be announced. The Senate pro temp tried to further stall, saying, If the senator from Arizona will not interrupt, the result will be announced. Ashurst realized what was going on and responded whimsically. Well, let there be no unseemly haste. Still no Dawes, and the result now had to be announced. To announce a tie was to announce the defeat of the Warren nomination, a defeat of the president's nominee. So, Senator Reid, a different Senator Reid, this one from Pennsylvania, who had voted for confirmation initially, changed his vote. Common parliamentary tactic, you vote with the opposition so that according to parliamentary rules, you can then bring the matter up for reconsideration. You can't do that if you vote yes. So there you have it. The result was announced. 41 against, 39-4. For. Now, Senator Reed of Pennsylvania immediately moved to reconsider, and another roll call was ordered and begun. Great timing, because just at this time, Mr. Dawes arrived upon the scene, having been yanked out of the taxi by two senators. The vote was again 40 to 40. Every senator who had voted against the nomination voted to table the motion to reconsider, and vice versa. It seemed that Mr. Dawes might still cast a deciding vote here, but he wouldn't get the chance. Senator Overman, the sole Democrat who had voted for confirmation and against tabling, rose. Mr. President, I see that those on this side of the aisle do not want this man for attorney general, and so I change my vote. So much for the executive family, at least when it came to a table vote. The result was read. 41 votes to table the motion to reconsider, 39 against. Vice President Dawes didn't even get a chance to vote on that one. Mr. Warren is beaten. It had been one of the first time in generations that a presidential nominee was rejected by the Senate. President Coolidge was furious. He telegraphed Mr. Warren in Detroit to come to Washington. Senators advised the president, don't do this. To the Senate's surprise, Coolidge nominated him a second time. An official statement issued from the White House. The president is making every effort to secure the confirmation of Mr. Warren, and he has decided on no other appointment. Senator Thomas Walsh now used this as a test. The presidency versus the Senate. The Senate itself is under a test as to whether its power given by the Constitution shall be disregarded. The Senate decided it would not be this time. They rejected Mr. Warren, 46 to
0: 39. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: So what had started as a story of a sleeping vice president became a story of the senators defending their constitutional role against a president of the United States, overreaching. Coolidge, of course, was furious at Vice President Dawes, but. He suspected a little bit that because Warren had been one of the people voting against Dawes in the Republican convention in his uh, nomination for vice president, that perhaps that's the reason he was a little slow to get out of his hotel room. The Warren story, in a sense, though, is not a story of a sleeping vice president, but a story of a sleeping constitutional power. The Senate's ability to reject a nominee, rarely used, but of course, just as effective when it is used. The whole napping thing was not a mistake another vice president would make, again, at least that we know of. For Vice President Quayle, newly elected, he was certain to be there, awake, at the chamber in 1991 for the nomination of John Tower, the nominee of President George H.W. Bush for defense secretary. But he was not able to break any tie votes. All he was able to announce was The nomination of John Tower to be Secretary of Defense is not confirmed. The President is to be notified of the Senate vote. Indeed, John Tower, nominee for Defense Secretary after George H. W. Bush, was defeated by the Senate fifty three to forty seven, the last cabinet nominee to be directly rejected. Tower was a senator from Texas, the first Republican elected since Reconstruction. He arrived there because of a quirk. He had been recruited to run against Lyndon Johnson in 1960. That's the year that Johnson was running with Kennedy on the ticket. And because of Texas law, he was running both for vice president and senator at the same time. Tower was unlikely to win. He was a sacrificial lamb candidate. But he ran on the slogan of double your pleasure by voting against Johnson twice. He got 41% in the 1960 election, a bit more than anyone expected. And so he then ran in the special election to replace Johnson after LBJ was sworn in as vice president. And Tower won that election, began his career in the Senate. Yet despite that long history, many were surprised to learn that Tower had few friends among the senators. He had a reputation as a mean and petulant man, one who had bullied colleagues, especially during his time as Armed Services Committee Chair, a very important committee, Tower entered the Senate. It was a cozy place. Members drank with each other, conversed with each other, protected each other from the outside world. Journalists were less intrusive. By the time he left the Senate in 1985, the Senate had quickened and was less collegial. Senators were more likely to dash off the floor to a fundraiser than to stop for a drink in another senator's office. Also, public attitudes towards drinking had changed. In 1989, George H.W. Bush nomination for Secretary of Defense. Nomination is going well in the relevant committee until a right wing activist told the committee he personally witnessed Tower in an unfortunate condition lacking sobriety. And the committee paid some attention to that, but really began paying attention when one of his own aides, Congressman Larry Compest, described his old boss's habits in the 60s and 70s. He consumed a bottle of scotch a night several times a week and had to be helped out of his detachable shirt collars, into bed. The committee was concerned. If Tower was an alcoholic, he could be stone sober during office hours and still have his judgment and temperament somewhat impaired by liquor. The question, what would office hours be at defense during a war? Tower and his allies rejected this notion. They said a public official's drinking habits are not relevant unless they noticeably affect his job performance in some blatant way. He did his job, he never showed up drunk on the Senate floor, were their arguments. Sam Nunn, heading the committee, looked at something different. He looked for evidence, not of whether drinking affected Towers' job performance, but whether he had been an alcoholic. It's not, does Tower drink occasionally now, but did he ever address his problem? Nunn's conclusion was, I could find no point of where the pattern was recognized and dealt with, and that was all the way up to the late 80s. Nunn had worked several years on the staff of Senator Herman Talmadge without realizing that he was an alcoholic. And that experience perhaps convinced none that it would be a real problem to have an alcoholic as a defense secretary. And a normal alcoholic could disguise it during some hours, but still have a problem that would make him not fit. Tower responded, Have I ever drunk to excess? Yes. Am I alcohol dependent? No. Have I always been a good boy? Of course not. Have I ever done anything disqualifying? No. And that's the point. But it got out of control. Now, in addition to the drinking, there were stories of womanizing. There were stories he was pulled out of a Washington bar. There was a story that he was banned from Australia because of his drinking, both of which turned out to be untrue. The charges of womanizing were added. The nomination went south. Nunn tried to work with his ranking Republican, John Warner, with the hope that President Bush would decide to withdraw the Tower nomination rather than having to reject it and name a more suitable person. When the vote in the committee finally came, committee members divided strictly along party lines. Nine Republicans voting for Tower, 11 Democrats voting against it. That should have been the end of it, the president sending up another name. But according to a White House official, the president circled the wagons and decided to make the fight partisan in attacking Senator Nunn, describing him as partisan and a man seeking power. Want to learn how you
2: can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
1: None was a moderate Southern Democrat from Georgia. He was not thought of as strongly partisan. Even the ranking Republican on the Armed Services Committee had to defend him. None likes Tower personally, and it's not a power grab that much, I can tell you. The showdown saw that classic argument that you'll see in all of these possible cabinet rejections. President Bush asserted that John Tower should be confirmed because of the right of the president to have the historical right to have who he wants in his nomination. Dole made the same argument. President Bush selected John Tower. He has the right to have people he wants in his cabinet. On the other hand, Democrats were quick to point out that senators can reject nominees. They quoted Hamilton, who in Federalist 76 said, The Senate's confirmation powers would tend greatly to preventing the appointment of unfit characters. But what really sunk him was the statements of John Tower himself. He'd opposed several of Jimmy Carter's nominations, the head of uh, armed control and, and his secretary of labor, though they were presidential appointments. Worse, in 1977, when he opposed one of those nominations, he said, The suggestion has been made that the people should trust the president. I think that ordinarily we do, but after all, the Constitution has vested in us the responsibility for advice and consent, and it is one we should exercise. In 1991, the Senate did and Tower's name has become one of the more memorable Senate rejections, and the last one. But you know, it could be worse, image-wise, than being John Tower. There was that guy, Caleb Cushing, who was turned down by the Senate three times on the same day. John Tyler, because he was a Whig who turned coat and adopted Democratic policies, was hated by the Whigs who controlled the Senate, and they went after his nominees because a second Tyler nominee for Treasury Secretary was rejected as well, and his nominee for Secretary of War and Secretary of the Navy were also rejected. John Tyler has the most cabinet rejections of any president, and actually makes the overall statistics look bigger than they are. The first rejection had occurred during Andrew Jackson's term, when his good friend, Roger Tanney, had been appointed to be Treasury Secretary. The Whigs in the Senate, controlling at that time, didn't like it. He had been involved in the battle over the Bank of the United States. They rejected him. Later, Jackson would appoint him to the Supreme Court. Another 19th century cabinet rejection came in 1868, when the radical Republican Senate, who hated Andrew Johnson and had just been defeated in trying to impeach him, rejected his nomination. It's rare, and it takes an extraordinary amount of partisanship and that provides context to the upcoming Senate confirmation, as President Obama seeks to reshape his cabinet for a second term and is putting former senators on, Senator John Kerry for Secretary of State, Senator Chuck Hagel to lead the Pentagon. The Senate has historically granted the president deference on such decisions. Nominations tend not to be derailed unless there's strong ethical lapses. And usually when that happens, the president withdraws. You saw this an example of... Uh, Anthony Lake and Zoe Baird during the Clinton administration, Linda Chavez during the Bush administration. The president gets stubborn and puts it through. You could have a rejection. But sometimes it's just personal. For just the second time in what had then been six and a half years in the White House, President Eisenhower called a special conference. The first news conference had been a novelty. This time, Ike was angry. Today, he said, is the second most shameful day in the history of the Senate, the first being the impeachment of Johnson, a man who in war and peace has served his nation under four presidents, President Eisenhower said, had been poorly treated. Admiral Lewis Strauss had some issues, a stormy as chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, a rough way with senators during his tenure, but still he was a favorite to become Eisenhower's Secretary of Commerce. His rejection may have come down to a single comment. While he was heading the Atomic Energy Commission, on one occasion, he angrily stated that New Mexico's Democratic Senator Clinton Anderson, chairman of the Joint Committee on Atomic Energy, had a limited understanding of what is involved in Cold War atomic energy policy. Senate chairmen aren't used to being treated that way by people in front of their committee. Anderson never forgave Strauss for the remark. Then something else happened. The 1958 election, it changed things for the Democrats. They gained 13 seats that had been Republican, plus two seats from the new state of Alaska. It added up to 64 Democrats and 34 Republicans, crushing defeat. The Eisenhower administration on national security issues, domestic issues, the economy, seemed to be on the defensive. Anderson took up the cause to make sure that Mr. Strauss would not be confirmed by the Senate. His ally, Wyoming Senator Gail McGee, charged that Mr. Strauss had a brazen attempt to hoodwink the committee. Senator Anderson, not a member of the Commerce Committee, appeared himself as a witness for two days and read a 42-page attack. Anderson worked the senators, previously been for Strauss. For Louisiana Russell's long, he reminded him of a personal favor done for his father a quarter century ago. For Georgia's Herman Talmadge, he just needed a little flattery. He had some flowery praise for him in a speech at the Georgia Tech, where he got back to Senator Talmadge, and Talmadge growled, you can put me down against Strauss. For then-freshman Robert Byrd of West Virginia, it just took a little bit of guiding through the testimony of what? Then there were two Republicans. North Dakota had a maverick senator, William Langer, who was against the administration on most things, voted against Strauss. And then... Maine's Margaret Chase Smith felt that as the only woman in the Senate, she wasn't getting enough attention paid to her. And so she voted against Strauss as well. Strauss was defeated. Shocked to many. Eisenhower made no attempt to renominate him. And Strauss said he would go back to his cattle farm. So that's going back to the 50s. Then you got John Tower, and now we're in the present. These are exciting stories of brinksmanship, but it's not that common at all. These are the few and not so proud. The cabinet rejection.
0: Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.